today is the big game. How many of you don't care? Holy cow. About half the group. <laughs> now, I know the other half of the group in here is pumped up. And if I didn't mention something about the game, you'd leave here feeling deflated. So, <laughs> so I want to start off with my prediction for the game. My prediction, rooting for the Seahawks today. Any other Seahawks? I'm calling 31-24. Yeah? How many? Who's going Seahawks? Okay. Just a few. Who's going Patriots? Just, just a few. All right. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I've really enjoyed listening to uh, Russell Wilson over the past year. He got a lot of press last year around the Super Bowl, being a young quarterback. And if you didn't know it, Russell Wilson has a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, last year around the Super Bowl, a pastor in Seattle interviewed Russell and some of the other Christians on the Seahawks team. And they asked him, what does Jesus mean to you? Why is Jesus important to you? And one of the things Russell Wilson said was, Jesus is love. At the end of the day, we're all looking for someone to comfort us, somebody to be there for us at all times. How many of you guys believe in that Jesus who's there? Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So if what he says is true, then it's always been true about Jesus Christ. He's the Savior of compassion. We're going to see two stories in Luke chapter 7 that show the compassion of Jesus today. And as I look at these two stories, they're very different in a lot of ways. And I hope that the difference will teach us something about this Savior of compassion, that we should never put Jesus in a box. Sometimes we do that, almost unconsciously. We decide who Jesus is going to reach and how he's going to reach him. And he doesn't work outside of that box that we create. Well, in these two stories, we're going to see two different people that are in two totally different stations in life. Two different people that have different actions in their lives. Jesus reaches them both. And ultimately, what I want to focus in on today is this Savior of compassion. What is compassion? One man defined it as compassion is your pain in my heart. Now, that's a powerful definition of compassion. And we see that throughout Jesus' ministry. Today, we're going to see it in the lives of a centurion and a desperate widow. And I think of Luke's early readers. He was writing to a man named Theophilus. Luke was a Gentile doctor. And many believe he was writing primarily to Gentiles at the time of the early church. At the time, Jews and Gentiles were struggling to get along and Gentiles weren't always welcomed in. And so as an early Gentile, an outcast to many in that early church reading these words, they would be encouraged because this centurion was a Gentile. As an early woman in the church, women were often looked down upon. A, a woman might read this passage and say, I love this Jesus that reached out to this woman. Maybe, just maybe, I could be a part of his body and be loved on today. It speaks encouragement to all the outcasts. If you walked in here feeling like an outcast this morning, this should 
encourage you. First one is a Roman centurion, chapter 7 of Luke, verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all this, you remember the, the message that we just broke down about what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus? He finished saying it all to the people who were listening. He entered Capernaum. There, a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. Now, a couple things about this centurion. Many of you know that a centurion was a higher up in the Roman army that was occupying Israel at the time. So generally, these guys were not very popular, the Romans, right? You have an invading country in your land ruling. You don't generally like them. But this guy, as every other centurion who's ever mentioned by Luke, is mentioned positively. He has actually built a synagogue, a worship place for the Jews. So they, they love this guy. And he doesn't want to go to Jesus directly. Maybe he feels as a Gentile that would put Jesus on the spot. We're going to see later he doesn't feel worthy. But he's actively pursuing Jesus, right? You see him sending people to Jesus to come back. Also, I want you to understand that if he was able to help them build a synagogue, being at that level of the Roman army, he was probably fairly well off. He sends the elders. It says, verse 6, Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now, a couple things I want to point out about this centurion. This is a servant boy, and it, people didn't always care that much about their servants in that day. This centurion did. The word he used for servant, pays, was also used for son. He loved this servant. But he's also humble. Do you hear where he said, I'm not worthy to have you under my roof? He's sort of embodying what Jesus just talked about a couple weeks ago in the Beatitudes, remember? Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's like a living, breathing example of this. And he also has some serious faith. Do you see what he said? He said, I'm a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this. And he does it. He's saying, look, I know what it's like to be under authority. There were higher ups over him. And he knows what it's like to tell his guys to go to this city or that war. And they do it. And he has this simple yet powerful faith. He knows that if Jesus will just command this disease to leave his servant, it will go. It's simple faith. But sometimes simple things are the most powerful. Jesus talks about childlike faith. Bruce Larson talks about the power of simple things in the aviation industry. Any pilots or anybody 
tied into the flying industry. Gene? Oh, cool. Gene's husband, Scott, flew in the Navy. Up in Seattle, is Boeing still there at the time Larson wrote this? Uh, Boeing was up there. Huge branch of aviation industry. The first Boeings were propeller planes, okay? And they had thousands, if not tens of thousands of parts, okay? Very, very complicated. Then there were prop jets, which were less complicated. Then the pure jet, even more simple. Then the rocket, which he says is the most sophisticated form of aviation, and yet it's the simplest of all of them. It's the same way with our faith. Sometimes a simple faith that just believes Jesus is who he is and can do what he says he can do is the most powerful. His faith blew Jesus away. Verse 9 says, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. This Gentile centurion and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. He's not knocking the Jews. He's just saying, hey, they, they've had the scriptures. You would expect them to believe in the Messiah. This is a, a Gentile centurion that didn't grow up with that luxury. And here he is believing in Jesus. Verse 10, and the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Now, Alexander McLaren looks at this account and he points out a couple interesting things. There's this struggle back and forth in this story about is this man worthy, is he not? The elders felt like he was worthy because they had built a synagogue, so they told Jesus that. The man himself, though, knowing his heart, as only we can know of our own hearts, he, he knew he wasn't. They thought that's what it was about. Is he worthy, is he not worthy? What I want to say, his faith is what Jesus commends, not his character. Wearsby, as if this Roman with very little spiritual instruction, had that kind of faith in God's word, how much greater our faith ought to be. We have an entire Bible to read and study, as well as nearly 2,000 years of church history to encourage us, and yet often we're guilty of no faith or little faith. Our prayer ought to be, Lord, increase our faith. I want to go back to something here. It said that Jesus was amazed at him. There are two times in the gospel, we're told, where Jesus marveled or was amazed. One was here, where he marveled at this man's faith. The other was in Mark chapter 6, when he went to his hometown. Listen to this. Jesus left there, went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach. Many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom? What are these remarkable miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? Etc. And they took offense at him. And this is what Jesus said to the people in his hometown. He said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Now look at those two examples of Jesus being amazed by something. And I wanted to ask myself and for all of us to wrestle with the question, if Jesus were to be amazed at your life this morning, for which reason would it be? Would it be that he looked and said, wow, this person has gone through so many valleys, so many trials, so many difficulties, and yet they've taken me at my word. 
they trust me? Or would it be the other? Would he look into our lives and say, I've given them so much. I've given them my word. I've given them these people in their lives. I've given them this encouragement, and yet they still refuse to come to me. If Jesus was to marvel at our lives today, which would he be marveling at, our faith or our unbelief? I'll show you the second person, the widow. Verse 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And we said the centurion was wealthy. In this day, it, it, it's never easy to be a widow. In this day, it was a nightmare if you did not have a son or someone else, some other man to care for your estate because a woman couldn't easily go out and earn a living. She's already a widow. Her son is dead. So where the centurion was powerful and wealthy, this woman is now desperate. Probably at the end of her rope, wondering how am I going to go on? That's where she was. That's where she lived. Where the centurion was actively pursuing Jesus, she's just going about her business, right? Her son has died. They're taking him to be buried. Okay? Just going about her business. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Many of the commentators point out here what's so beautiful about this is God's providence. She was just going about her business. They were heading to the cemetery. <laughs> Yet in God's providence and his timing, Jesus met this woman at the gate. And Jesus said, don't cry. Now, I would not encourage any of us to say that to someone, okay, who's got a family member who's just passed away. Jesus said that because he was just about to do something about her tears. There are other times where Jesus himself wept at the pain of the world. He's not some stoic who tells us to suck it up. He only said this because of what he's about to do. He went up and touched the buyer. They were carrying him on. And the bearers stood still. You imagine the whole crowd like, what, what's, going, what's this guy doing? Now he's ceremonially unclean. You're not supposed to touch that. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk. Wouldn't you love to find out what he said? <laughs> this next line is so tender. You see Jesus' compassion for this widow as Jesus gave him back to his mother. I just would love to see that, that handoff. Here he is. He's going to take care of you. I love you. I care about you. They were all filled with awe and praised God. 
A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country, you think? (laughs) This is the first of three people we know of that Jesus raised from the dead. They're recorded. That they called him a prophet, that makes sense because this was on one side of a hill. It was called the Hill of Mora. Just on the other side of the hill, there was a town called Shunem. You can bet they knew the story that centuries before, Elisha had been there. 2 Kings 4, just a brief summary of that story. Uh, There's a woman that had blessed Elisha many times, and he asked in 2 Kings 4, 14, what can be done for her? His servant said she has no son and her husband is old. Then Elisha said, call her. So he called her. And she stood in the doorway. About this time next year, Elisha said, you you will hold a son in your arms. No, my Lord, she objected. Please, man of God, don't mislead your servant. (laughs) She'd been through too many failed attempts, right? She doesn't want her hopes to get dashed. Don't mislead me. But the woman became pregnant. And the next year, about that same time, she gave birth to a son. Now, if you read the rest of the chapter, you'll know that there was a day where the son ran out into the field with an intense headache. It was, Father, my head, my head, and the son ended up dying. The woman ran to find Elisha in her pain, her grief. And she says this, you can hear the pain and the the hurt. Did I ask you for a son, my Lord? Didn't I tell you don't raise my hopes? Elisha went with her. When he reached the house, there was the boy lying dead on his couch. He went in, shut the door on the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. Then he got on the bed and lay on the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. As he stretched himself out on him, the boy's body grew warm. Elisha turned away and walked back and forth in the room and then got on the bed and stretched out on him once more. The boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Elisha summoned Gehazi and said, Call the woman. And he did. When she came, he said, Take your son. She came in, fell at his feet, and bowed to the ground. Then she took her son and went out. That story was well known by all those folks, you can bet. When Jesus shows up and does the same thing, God has come to help us. So what looks impossible in your life right now? It could be a financial situation you're in, a medical situation, a family situation. Take it to the God who do the impossible. Take it to the Savior. And I look at the fact that these two people are so very different. I go back to don't put Jesus in a box, and I, and I look at his heart. And I think of what Bernard of Clairvaux said. Warren Wiersbe shared this. Justice seeks out only the merits of the case. The pity only regards the need. It was Jesus' compassion that dictated these situations. He cares about everything you're going through. All right, Whether you have hope right now or whether you feel like it's impossible... Father, please help us to embrace your power and your compassion this morning. I love your word in Psalm 91. It says, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High 
will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely He will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His feathers and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. Examine our hearts. Examine our faith. Lord, help us to look to Jesus, as Ryrie said. Not to, not to focus inward during this time, but to look to Him. And we pray that You would increase our faith. I pray that wherever we find ourselves, we would bring it to the Savior of compassion and find that he is working powerfully. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.